0: Something different, this way comes something, something different. Something different, something different, this way comes something, something different, something different. Something different. Welcome to the last episode of Something Different This Way Comes Fifth season. A season focused on hope and action and the Northwest Climate Gathering, which I helped organize and host last month here in Thunder Bay. This is the finale for season five of Something Different This Way Comes. It features my conversation that I had just last week with Richard Wong, and it's a meaty one. I've got a lot of music, a lot of conversation. You can take this in pieces if you want. I would think it might be recommended. Richard flew up from Toronto to take part in the Northwest Climate Gathering on his own penny. And he was so engaged, so into it. Not just from the moment he walked in, listening, sparking conversations, and twice leading topics of discussion, but even before then, the moment he signed on, he was in it 100%. And the perspective that Richard Wong brings to our conversation is it's sincere, it's thoughtful, it's remarkably well-informed for a man who'd never been to Thunder Bay before. Now, Richard is a lawyer. He supports big development projects from inception to completion across the country, has done it for many years, and most of those projects are green. Green energy, green buildings, green transport, green neighborhood developments, but mostly green energy. Richard and I go way back. We met when we were 13 or 14 on my first trip to Quebec. We were both Toronto junior high students taking part in a language exchange. And then he went to the same high school as I did, or I should put it the other way around because he was a year ahead of me. So I went to the same high school Richard was at. We were in high school together. But we haven't stayed in close touch. I mean, literally for decades. A few weddings we would cross paths and catch up a bit. And then just recently uh, we connected on LinkedIn and typing was insufficient to catch up on all that had happened. So we, we, we had a couple of phone calls to get up to speed. And then when we were putting the gathering together, still kind of uh, audacious of me, to reach out to Richard and say, here's what I'm a part of. And what we feel like we're missing is the perspective of corporations that would bring in big solutions and be working at the national scale. Do you know anybody here? that could bring that perspective that I could approach. And instead, Richard said, I'd like to come, which was remarkable and wonderful. Like I said, from the moment Richard made the commitment, he started diving into preparations and peppering me with all these things he found, papers, reports, articles, references to this part of the world and to what's going on here and has recently been accomplished here. And you know this is all stuff that I'm really into, that I try to keep abreast of, that as a, a journalist with a, with a knack for Googling, I kind of thought I would not often be surprised by. But, yeah, in short order, Richard taught me more than a few things. He knows his way around what's going down. And it was just such a joy to get to follow on his tailwinds for a little while and, and start to see this region from his perspective, the perspective of big development organizations. But then I chose, when Richard agreed to be my guest for this final episode, not to focus on the facts, but talk more about the region. Northwestern Ontario, Thunder Bay. From Richard's perspective, after his two-day visit here at the gathering, and the conversation is kind of dense, I found as we talked I was working hard to sort of be sure I understood what he was saying. It reminded me of listening to quirks and quarks, Right? Where these scientists that live deep inside whatever their field of study is are trying to explain why whatever is newsworthy is so exciting to them. And a bit of translation is often required. I mean, Bob McDonald is brilliant at it. So I, I tried to put on my Bob McDonald. I tried. And it's not because Richard's saying anything with obscure language or... It's just there were a lot of bridges required intellectual bridges between his perspective, his understanding, and where I found in talking to him, it turns out I was at. And Richard was very patient and thoughtful in trying to make me connect from where I'm at to where he's at. But before I play our conversation, I'm going to give us a little bit of a preview to how I came to understand those bridges once I'd had a chance to think about them a little bit more and I also of course boiled them down into a song so let me give you a taste of that song because I think that'll help too. So at the Northwest Climate Gathering last month, Richard had two topics, each with a co-leader he'd never met before, but whom he reached out to beforehand to prepare. So the first topic Richard led was on Saturday with Becca A. It was titled Engaging Successfully with Government and Corporations, and to be honest, I came up with that title, not them. But just think about how much within that topic Richard could choose to talk about. (laughs) He could probably fill a whole semester, or a weekend himself but I only gave him and Beckamay an hour. And Beckamay's insight into this is equally vast. She does many things. Mostly, though, she works to help corporations be better partners with the communities in which they do their business. She's a champion of ESG. That stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And those are investment standards that are rising in both prevalence and impact around the world. And it is really just one of the tools she uses to help change the world. This corporate-dominated, ill-functioning macroeconomy of ours, she's working to change it for the better. So, Becca, May, and Richard put their heads together. How to tackle the topic in the time given. And they decided on how to approach engagement as a community. And Richard wanted us to first think about what community are you representing? Be specific and be thoughtful in preparing to represent your community. He referenced the Just Transitions Guide. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. He talks about it in our conversation today, too. It's a new document. It is a powerful document. And it is so helpful if you're trying to think about how to be effective in shaping big projects, big undertakings happening in your home territory as a representative of the community there, or a community there. He also had some success stories of First Nation communities here in northwestern Ontario that are collaborating with big energy developments that they welcome. Becca May urged us to remember that corporations are not necessarily any worse than any other community. They're a group of people doing something together. They have overtly stated goals, mission statements, organizational ways of doing things that make it clear how they expect things to get done, what expectations and goals they're bringing into an engagement. They're making it easy. And so, she says, to be successful, take full advantage of that information before you engage and give as much as you wish to receive. Come with a clear understanding of who you are, what you want, what's most important to you in this engagement. It was really interesting how hard it was to wrap your head around these pretty simple principles. That's the first bridge I want to talk about. The bridge that Richard and Becca May were building, and that bridge that Richard again tried to build in the conversation of today's episode, bridging a, a gap between their understanding of corporations, big business, and the deep prejudice many of us hold. Like big business, it's like short form for bad guy, right? It, it's, it's very often the villain in our uh, narratives, fictional as much as anything else, in our short little news cycles that don't allow for a depth of uh, perception, And also in our hearts. I mean, I think it's part of our culture. Personally, it makes me think immediately of the the documentary that came out in the early 2000s, of the corporation, Canadian documentary, that uh, compared a corporation's mandate structure, you know, what it's built to do as an individual person under the law, and a psychopath. It's like it has no moral template. It only has a profit-driven template, and therefore it can't help but do bad, that had a huge impact on me, that documentary. And and I feel like that take on things is quite prevalent in most of the circles I move in. And certainly most of the circles that were drawn to attend the gathering. So this was a bridge these guys were building to say, no, there's more going on than that. Don't be so simplistic. This is not a bad guys versus good guys. This is a group of people and another group of people. Stated intentions and need to be equally clearly stated intentions opportunity to collaborate. Whoa, my mind would be blown. it's, It's a bridge to build. The other places where I feel like I see this prejudice against business corporations, multinationals, is in the way that those of us that are employed in large corporations, or government, big structures like that, very often speak of that organization itself as if it were its own thing. You know, as if we were somehow not even cogs in its complicated mechanization, but somehow, you know, pawns. There was some master player that was manipulating us and had complete control over us, which also makes me think of a longstanding cultural resonance in this country of, of company towns, of being so at the mercy of the company that uh, has built the town you live in, uh, that employs most of the people you know, all your friends and neighbors, that it's really hard to have the courage to speak against them, to criticize them in any way. It's an us and them sort of David and Goliath take on big organizations. Beckham and Richard are like, here's this group of people working in this way that want to do good. You know, they want to change the world. They want to be successful. They want to meet these goals that they've stated that are transformative, positive, we have a role to play in the world, goals. It's a major distance from a pure old, if it's corporate, it's bad, way of thinking. But that's what Richard asked us to imagine. What if, maybe not every company, certainly, but a lot of companies out there are really trying to just do their job well. And be part of these solutions. Big business boils down to people, to you and me and we, building understanding, building solutions, build relationships, build the last work together and we'll get it done. Burns for tomorrow. That's verse one. The second bridge I think Richard makes in trying to bring the perspective of the big corporations who are out there looking for opportunities to build the big solutions we need in this climate crisis, in this rapid transformation from oil-dependent and net carbon emitting to fossil fuel-free and drawing back down that excess carbon that's fueling these devastating weather risks. The second bridge I heard him offer in this conversation is to put context into the points when those corporations reach out to communities in which they might ultimately do business or already are doing business. And this, this bridge, this bridge makes me think about my own marriage. Bear with me. But the parallels are kind of strong. It's not about Arno, though. It's about me. You see, three months ago and 16 years, I was in my late 30s. And I had never had a love affair last a year. Never made it to a one-year anniversary with anybody. Meanwhile, most of my friends had built long-term relationships, married, had children, maybe even by then divorced. I didn't realize how much I took that characteristic of my history to heart until I signed on for online dating. Not just any service, but simpatico. It wasn't my idea. I had two friends Julie and Julie. And they worked at me for ages until I finally took the plunge. Now, Sympatigo I chose because it marketed itself as giving you better odds of finding the right match. Because instead of basing matching just on, you know, how you respond to a photo of one another, it had this detailed questionnaire and science applied to ensure that your matches were good ones and your odds of finding your soulmate were so much better so the questionnaire was a major workout for me it made me face how reluctant i was to impose my expectations on a relationship i just kind of given up on being the one who got to choose somebody i just somehow somewhere along the way without deciding it consciously adopted this understanding that I'd be lucky to get anybody. I could not afford to put any barriers between me and somebody who might be interested in me. So this questionnaire that was supposed to you know, focus on what I was looking for was really hard work for me. And what I worked at was trying not to close any doors at all. I was so convinced that they'd have a hard time matching me. I needed to work hard to open all the doors. So I finished the the questionnaire, and I was flooded with matches. It became very quickly a full-time job. I tried to fit around a full-time job. And I started being dumped because I didn't get back to people fast enough. I mixed them up with one another. I would spell the name wrong. It was too much. And usually when I was dumped, pretty quickly... I was relieved because it was one less job to stay on top of. I mean, it was kind of farcical. Like, Julie and Julie were, like, quite entertained. And eventually, I started figuring out that I should do some of the dumping. And that was only respectful to pay attention to these people enough to decide if I wanted to be with them or not, what my boxes were, and whether or not they ticked them. It was an incredible learning experience. I really didn't know I really, really did not know how low I could go until I had to work my way out of that hole and figure out what I wanted. And then I got matched with Arno, and we got together for coffee within the week, and I left Simpatico within two weeks. And before we hit our one-year anniversary of getting matched on Sympatico, Arno and I, two people, He's 11 years older than me. He's seen all our friends get married, have kids, you know, go through that decades earlier. And we had never done it, either of us. We were married and we had been in our arms. I mean, once you know what you're looking for, it's so much easier to find it, I think. I think you have to do your half of the business before you're ready for things to click. And this makes me think of this bridge. Bridge this bridge that Richard was trying to build. It's scary, I know Can't see how it'll go 3. This transition from climate crisis feeding to climate crisis solving will mostly happen right in front of our noses, here, where we live, in how we get places, where our food is grown, how we take care of one another and support newcomers to our community, how we choose to waste not, so we want not. It's not just what fuels the power plant that feeds our grid. That's just a drop in an ocean to change that will that needs to change our culture. Make us value what is most essential. Instead of taking that for granted, devaluing it, in fact, and focusing our attention on baubles and exceptions, which have distracted us for a while. The Third Bridge The third bridge I think you'll hear Richard building towards me in this conversation is stretching from the win-lose way we tend to talk about big projects. It reminds me of romances that end with a wedding and tragedies about love lost. When we all know the real point, the real meat, the real power of a relationship is not the day you get married. It is the relationship. That's a living, growing, changing thing. It's a commitment. So Richard, more than once, walks us through the path, starting with even before you know you're being watched, to corporations getting their toes in to see if this is really where they want to do business, to them engaging with the community to inform their choices, and then the development and the establishment and the ongoing part of a community. And let's look again at that first time. Corporations are actively looking for partners and places to do business. They're researching this area much as Richard did. How do we look from a distance online? Well, Richard figured it out pretty darn quick. And he knows that other people, other organizations are looking. They want to see what are our plans? What's our track record? What's our reputation? Now, this is something we can kind of stage set. Like, you can make sure you look your best before you leave the house. But we can't really observe it. You, you can't see yourself from somebody else's eyes. Unless it's successful, and the corporation commits to step one, the date, and you get a sense of how they're seeing you, what they expect, what they, they figured you were all about based on what they observed before they had a chance to talk to you. That community engagement, Richard talks about a lot. And again, I think of romance. Because in an old-fashioned patriarchal romance, dating is not sincere. It's, it's, a, it's a win-lose game. There are facades, there are assumptions, there are rules. We all know building a solid foundation, though, for a lasting commitment, a good and nourishing one, it's very different from that. It takes vulnerability, honesty, a sincere getting to know you that's open to both success and possible failure. And then, if it does go well, the story doesn't end when the project is okayed, just like a marriage doesn't end with a wedding. Or it shouldn't. Big problems need big solutions. Big jobs need teams to work expect the respect you give you share what you know you learn and you grow build it to last work to The second topic that Richard Wong led at the Northwest Climate Gathering, he led with Summer Stevenson, who's the sustainability coordinator at the city of Thunder Bay, and the topic was big community projects. After a bit of introduction, the two of them split that into two groups, and the one Richard led discussed where's the money. And really, after spending that weekend at the event with us, bringing his perspective as someone who's supported so many big projects from start to finish, I think Richard wants us to understand that the money is there. The money is watching us and looking for evidence that they can work with us here. That we'd prove to be successful partners in building solutions, improvements, moving our little place on the planet towards the changes we know are needed. But, if I'm understanding his feedback clearly, there are a few flags we're waving that might likely be discouraging some of those big solution providers from even letting us know they're looking, certainly from engaging with us just yet. And one of them, a big fat one that kept coming up at the gathering, is a history of not achieving our plans. A big theme at the gathering was people pointing to official municipal plans, our sustainability plan, the net zero strategy that replaced the sustainability plan in 2020, published plans with stepped-out goals, by this date we will do this, and strategizing how to get those things actually done. Now, that, that gap between what we say we're committed to doing and what we actually get done, that is one great big flag scaring the money off. That's a way of saying that this is not a reliable partner. They don't actually know what they can do. They don't really actually know what they want to do. They're not going to follow through on commitments they've made. So if I'm understanding Richard's careful and gentle answers to my questions in our conversation correctly, I think it's time to come together as community, figure out what we want, and make sure that what commitments we make we do everything in our power to achieve. Anyways, that was quite the preamble for a great conversation. So here, finally, is this conversation.
1: Terrific uh, initiative on your part, first of all. Uh, congratulations on the success of the Hope and Action Conference. And uh, it was a real pleasure and an honor to have been able to join and participate.
0: I loved having you there, not just because of all that you brought to the sessions you led, but because you really were so present, you were talking, you were listening, you were sparked to go and gather information to share when people seemed to want information you knew was out there. And uh, and what a joy to have you, have you join us and have you back today to talk to me about it all. I, I really appreciate it because I missed some of what you did. I was busy running around, you know, putting out fires and making sure details were in place. And uh, now I get to have you all to myself, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pleasure to, to talk about these themes because they're not going away. These themes that we're talking about are really grassroots, endemic themes that go from bottom to top. Everyone in the business community, governments are all focused uh, on many of the same questions. And so, uh, you know, if I can bring a perspective uh, to the mix of initiatives that are going on, uh, I'm happy to do that.
0: Which is great because I think your perspective, I know your perspective, is one that I didn't find anywhere else, right? I chatted with you, we caught up, and you mentioned in passing some of the aspects of law that you now practice, and then when not too long after we're starting to think about who to bring together to the gathering, I thought, oh, what we're missing, what we're missing is is some insight into, you know, bigger organizations, the kinds of decision-making that allows things to happen that haven't necessarily happened in a jurisdiction or in a field or in a country before. And maybe maybe that's what Richard was saying he does now. So I called you, and then you ended up joining us. But but give me more insight. Like, explain what's the perspective, as a lawyer, that you bring to major projects that, that are now happening, that need to start happening in a way they haven't happened before, that are sort of innovative or at least new to, to us
1: sure thing and so first off uh being a lawyer is uh is really just a skill set because to a project you can have uh, multiple roles as a lawyer Uh, so i bring the construction and project development uh, side to it Uh, there are many other lawyers who get involved uh, in developing a project from the regulatory perspective uh, the financing perspective uh, you know, project documents perspective. Uh, so there are lawyers along the way in a project to be able to pull a project together. So the lawyer lens I bring is as a construction and project development lawyer. Uh, and so in that regard, uh, my clients work in all industries with large capital projects that they need to develop. Uh, For example, uh, I've been developing large wind farms in Canada since 2009. Uh, I have uh, a very significant player in the Canadian marketplace uh, called Pattern Energy, and they had come to Canada and developed a wind farm in Manitoba. That was their first project. That, that At the time, it was the heart of the financial crisis, and there were a lot of financing challenges, but they knew how to develop renewable energy projects back then. So they did have a vision, uh, and since then, they had developed a number of projects in Ontario, in Quebec, uh, British Columbia, and Alberta as well. So uh, they have continued with their modus operandi, which is to find uh, stable jurisdictions uh, with good wind profiles, find communities that were uh, embracing the uh, development, and to uh, find a power purchase agreement or a source of uh, contractual recovery where the wind farms revenues could be assured and then navigate the regulatory system from there and then sign up the project contracts get the financing for the whole thing where the lender will lend, let's say 75 80% of the capital costs of the project then develop the project over, let's say, a two year construction cycle, then get to commercial operation. Then the revenue stream will start coming through the contract, and then it would run for a term of, let's say, 20 plus years of operation, and then to repower the facility or to potentially end it and decommission it. That is a little bit of the soup to nuts, and it's really a a repeatable process. Regulatory is huge. Uh, Community consultation, First Nation consultation, more on that later, but that is uh, an important piece to get social license. Despite the fact that a wind farm and a mining project are very different, uh, the processes of these in the private sector are very similar. in the sense there's a feasibility study, you get to the feasibility, then you get to the financeability, then operation. So uh, I assist in in those areas to pull the project documents together to make sure that uh, projects can be properly scoped and get executed for roughly what was budgeted for that. Uh, and that's critical because without that, no lender is going to lend to a project uh, and without a solid plan, then you can't really put your regulatory case forward to get the right approval.
0: I kind of have this vision of a Rube Goldberg machine. Like once you get the hang of a Rube Goldberg machine and the idea of managing tension targets and um, all the moving parts and the weights and the physics involved, you can build them out of many different parts. Um, But there are there is this this point of starting with this potential and then imagining your way through all the things that have to work in sync before you launch the ball (laughs) and and make sure it it becomes a a successful project. Um, Because a lot of what you said, I kept having to translate. (laughs) And so I got this vision of a Rube Goldberg machine and, and lining everything up so the balance is right and everything will click into place. Plus, we, we started off in the right place to be able to finish that, that element as well.
1: Exactly. And I, I like that analogy because root Goldberg machines t- tend to start with potential energy and then translate into kinetic energy. So in that sense, you look at potential of a project and then you start with the kinetic execution uh, and you hope it all works.
0: Yeah. And and also, you're working with people at a at a very and organizations on a, a very big scale. You know, they, they, it gets very specific where it's going to happen, how it's going to unfold, but at the same time, everybody's looking for that right match, and then they, they come together where it works. It's such a contrast to the grassrootsy event you came to where everybody's rooted in one place and not always necessarily sure how things kind of show up there with them. It's such a different perspective. It was neat to have that balance.
1: Yeah, I, I think, that, and that's why I I really, as you mentioned, I fully unplugged and engaged the entire weekend because it is a, great perspective that I do hear about and is essential in projects, uh, although myself, I, I don't do the regulatory aspect of project, uh, you know, that is a different skill set. And that's where communities tend to engage in the consultation uh, in particular, and also in filings with the board when stakeholders are to be heard from. And you know, without social license, uh, it is extremely difficult and potentially ill-advisable for any private sector developer to undertake something that, you know, is into linked to uh, affected communities because the recognition of uh, consultation uh, with communities uh, you know, has continued to grow. It's, it's an art, really, not a science. But I think the realization and also the scope of you know, who is affected and the ways they can be effective uh, you know, have only broadened. And that is great because it allows a diversity of perspectives to be brought to a project because project developers are there to develop projects. They are looking to find solutions to develop projects. And so they have their own take on how certain solutions will surmount certain problems. But that by no means is the only answer. That's the other thing I've learned over the years. That there never really is one way to do something. There are multiple ways. Multiple ways may involve multiple schedules to do. They may involve multiple costs, differing costs uh, in terms of execution. Uh, there are lots of trade-offs involved. But the qualitative features that go into understanding that you know can only come with a diversity of opinions from folks. That's why, get, getting back to the conference, I was so eager to hear directly from many of these folks who are uh, doing the hard work of articulating their communities' voices and, and views on you know, a number of projects. So for that uh, reason, I was, I was also uh, enriched from the conference.
0: What I'm hearing from you, a different image again, is the idea that development in the future, in the current time, is a very tailored and engaged process. It's not the where's a big field, I'm gonna turn into a cookie cutter subdivision and then I'll I'll build the exact same subdivision in 25 other urban centers because I've found the perfect house for the modern family and the perfect neighborhood layout. For me, driving through a neighborhood that started out cookie cutter and over time has been tailored to the different needs of the different people who happen to live there, Like Toronto, when we grew up, right, a lot of those neighborhoods were built all at once with enormous uniformity in design. And then the longer they've been lived in deeply, the more they are funky and unique and and full of -of one-of-a-kind aspects. And I feel like now, in this time of needing to change profoundly how we do a lot of things, starting sooner to tailor the solution to the appetites, the needs, The feedback, the engagement of the specific place where things are going to happen and the community involved is essential to success. It's not just a nice if you can add it on, but it's really the only way we'll pull off so many things changing so quickly,
1: effectively. I couldn't agree more, and I think uh, I'll just give one small example uh, with respect to First Nations consultations. So First Nations engagement over relatively few short years has really evolved, I think, for the better, qualitatively or subjectively, you know, instead of sort of checking a box of uh, some perfunctory consultation and perhaps a, a benefits agreement, you know, we've seen a lot of projects that have now. Uh, actively engaged and and called equal partners with First Nations on energy and other projects uh, as well. And so that has really evolved uh, and is, I think, is here to stay. And uh, there is an amazing guide uh, called the Just Transition Guide, by the way, which I I would recommend to the listeners. It is essentially an Indigenous-led document, which is incredibly well-written in terms of understanding what a just transition is like for uh, climate change. So what I would say is this is a roadmap from an indigenous community perspective. And you'll hear lots of stories in there, a lot of stories in terms of how First Nations uh, have become better acquainted with energy projects and how they've worked together and shared experiences to come to the point of uh, actively leading this. And so that is really empowering. And when I read it, I I realize that most of it applies to non-First Nations communities as well.
0: Which gets me to my other thought about your impressions of Thunder Bay, because you brought two lenses. You know, one was a social one. What are the people that live here? What's this event I've been invited to? Who's coming and why? But the other was a professional one. Like, what's going on in this transformative economy that I have a very specific perspective on that I see might come here or might already be here? Like, where do we fall as a as a region, as a community in the transformative energy sector or other fields of major developments that, that you talk about? Are we somewhere that'll come to last because we're so far off the map? Or are we implicated immediately because we're resource-based and resource are involved or somewhere between the two?
1: Yeah, I would say um, what we've seen is a shift towards the latter in the last only the last few years. So put another way, I see Northwestern Ontario as entering this phase of electrification, which uh, has been actuated by a number of key transmission projects. So really electricity transmission has now been extended to the North in a way that it hasn't been, for example, a major transmission line called uh, Wate is in the process of connecting 24 First Nations through an 1,800-kilometer transmission line, including a new new one up to Pickle Lake, and then sort of through Pickle Lake and separately through Red Lake up to the First Nations communities. And the idea there is to get them off diesel, bringing power from the grid. Existing power from the grid is quite transformative for those First Nations.
0: No pun intended. Uh,
1: <laughs> and then the, the east-west tide developed by Nextbridge was another example where the northwest is really benefiting from core transmission infrastructure to get to the area. And so, you know, the Policy is there at the provincial level through the uh, IESO, the Independent Electricity System Operator, uh, through its planning and its needs analysis uh, to electrify the Northwest. And that is specifically designed for multiple goals, including reduction of emissions, but also to electrify and to permit industry to grow based on the fact that there are stable, long-term, high-voltage connections through northwestern Ontario. So that will be a game-changer for industry. That is a fundamental shift that will benefit Thunder Bay. So I would not look at it as isolated uh, any longer.
0: I also feel like we have a college and a university here. We have more blue-collar workers and skilled workers per capita than most communities. We are at a geographic bottleneck for transportation. Ships, trains, cars, they all kind of have to come through us. We're right in the middle of the continent, too, on a very stable piece of highland. So although we have climate risks that other places have, we are free of some considerable risks to lower landing places, places with more of a coastline and so on. At any rate, I feel like if we are willing to own it, we could see a lot of change and a lot of new ways of doing things over a quite short period of time here. But we have to participate actively, or we might be steamrolled or turn into obstacles when, the, you know, the, when we might regret having lost opportunities because of.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and i think the question is also who is we in the we will be steamrolled right because i think when i hear about climate activism you know, I actually think that uh, developers view themselves as being actors as well on the stage of, mm-hmm. you know, the industry and development. And so, for example, the development of a transmission line, you have to develop a transmission line over a long distance, over various geographies with environmental impacts. But the net effect of this is to bring, let's say, back to Wate, you know, 24 First Nations connected to reduce diesel. So there is a uh, you know cost benefit exercise that you do on the various metrics uh, to decide. So, you know, that type of project would to me be climate action. That's one way to look at it. And I know that there is a a healthy amount of debate on, you know, the merits of projects and and whether or not things have been studied to the extent a well-reasoned decision. Can be made based on the science because I, I do recognize i work with engineers quite a bit that there is a lot of optimism in project development as well and the optimism translates everywhere including risk identification and measures for risk mitigation so uh, it doesn't mean that they are blind to issues but it rather they will consider it and, and try to address it in the ways they think are best but i think having input in that is what i would think of as, you know, not being steamrolled. In other words, you don't want to just take their view of how to mitigate risks when projects get developed uh, for those who are going to be part of the community that are involved in the project or impacted by the project. uh, To not be steamrolled to me means having your voice articulated and considered and, you know, in some sort of proceeding or directly with the developer who ideally would figure out the best way to address all the perspectives. So I think that is um, the way you've described, you know, the challenges of Thunder Bay uh, is very similar to what I had talked about in uh, on the second day of the session where I looked at um, potentially a similar case of Sault Ste. Marie, there was an article by Kieran O'Neill, uh, who was the smart energy business strategist at the Sault Ste. Marie Innovation Center, who described a few of the features of Sault Ste. Marie at the time that I thought resounded to me You know, as a first time visitor to Thunder Bay. That could be looked at as a sample, not a role model or playbook, but really as a sample of what worked there. So they were also, of course, located on Lake Superior. The winds off of that proximity to U.S. markets is also key. They had, uh, you know, Algoma, then more recently SR Steel come in and have traditional industries in which were somewhat in decline as well, uh, and so. The elements of what I drew out from that article were a few things. One would be what I would call political leadership that uh, in 2008, you know, they called themselves the energy capital of North America. So in terms of the private sector, they love nothing more than what I'll call political stability. Or or getting a sense of where government's head is at. And so how friendly or conducive are they to uh, private sector development? That's the bottom line. And the more they are, whether it's through declarations like this or, you know, tax incentives or, you know, reservation of industrial lands, uh, that sort of thing, all of those things are signs that to me, translate into what Thunder Bay could do to attract what it wants in terms of these types of developments. You had mentioned some wind farms uh, earlier. 2006, Uh, a developer had developed the Prince Wind Farm, and that was quite a large wind farm at the time. Uh, I acted for the Ontario Power Authority in running the procurement uh, and issuing the contracts that you know, became uh, one of them was the Prince Wind Farm. So uh, we know that project very well. So that was, uh, I think, a game changer for many reasons that, you know, at that point, wind farms were not as uh, widespread as you see them now. But by putting them there, you get some experience, people seeing that, communities living with wind farms, developers get a sense of operation and maintenance to make sure that that everything is working as they had modeled economically prior to commencing the project. Uh, And so all of that, everyone got to see what they were like in action. And I think that was uh, already helpful to be able to start with maybe what I'll call a pilot project uh, in that sense so that the community has a better sense of what they're looking for. Since then, they developed some uh, solar farms, and then they also attracted industry uh, by a company called Helien, which was a solar panel manufacturer. And they created jobs uh, in Sault Ste. Marie and then its proximity to the USA. So all of the things that you said in terms of you know Thunder Bay's advantages, I see as uh, quite similar uh, when you look at what Sault Ste. Marie did. Uh, And then since then, there's the Inflation Reduction Act from the United States. This is Joe Biden's um, stimulus package for green energy. And one of the things that that folks may not know about is that uh, investments in Canada by American companies also qualify for the incentives under the Inflation Reduction Act. And so that benefits Canada, especially in things like critical minerals and industry. And so that has brought a lot of Americans looking north as well. And given the proximity that Thunder Bay has, you know, there might be something there in terms of uh, very close geographic, business friendly environment uh, to which uh, development can occur. Um, And having said that, Canada has unrolled its version of the IRA here with, you know, reasonably generous tax breaks as well, that industry is finding is moving the needle on on development. Uh, And then the final thing that Sault Ste. Marie did was that they uh, entertained a pilot project, a lithium ion battery facility. So it's not processing lithium. It actually is is basically a battery uh, storage facility. And that was done about five, six years ago. Energy storage. Energy storage. Exactly. Electricity storage. So Sault Saint Marie had uh, surplus solar and wind. So the idea was that the battery storage would be able to store it when there's surplus and then let it out again when prices are high because as people know prices fluctuate depending on time of day the bottom line there is that the economic model for that three-year contract and that project was going to inject two million dollars into the city that i think is a big part of this because the more money i think can be brought to bear to projects in the thunder bay region the more becomes possible Right. And so you know, my focus was trying to unlock from the private sector development perspective incentives for private sector to come into Thunder Bay, then bring in the investment which will then catapult Thunder Bay into the next stage, you know, all while Thunder Bay itself tries to shape the types of projects it wants to attract.
0: Which makes me think of your first presentation that you shared with Becca Malawola, because you guys could have talked about anything. We asked you to give us an hour on successfully engaging with with large corporations and government. And although you gave some great news stories of people having successfully done so, for me what really resonated was the sense of how you think of yourself and how you think of these organizations is key. Approach as an equal with humility and pride both. That you're going to learn, that you have something to teach, that you're going to invest your time and insight and you will be invested in. And this way of exchanging needs and wants in order to collaborate on solutions, being a much more successful way to come forward and not come in and defensively and not come in despairingly, you know, angry and feeling like you've already lost somehow before you've even started the conversation, that really resonated for me, um, this idea of, of the culture of communication, when you want to make a long term commitment to another organization that hasn't a previous relationship with your community
1: yeah i I think I think uh, there's been more focus and attention on on making community engagement meaningful, and so there will always be those who disagree. I mean, just to use a legal analogy, uh, you know at our Supreme Court of Canada, we have nine judges for the very reason that they they don't always uh, decide unanimously so you may have a five four split uh for example which basically means you know five out of the nine thought one way and four dissented and uh and that is the law of the land right and so the consultations really are are a process and i want to put that you know separately from the result but the process itself has definitely in my view become more sophisticated potentially more meaningful i think regulators have been involved i think the first nations dynamic has certainly uh, shifted in favor of first nations so the the quality of engagement with them have been much more meaningful and again when you bring them on as an actual partner let's say a 50-50 partner then you are their equal And so it's not really a question of engagement anymore. It's working with your partner. And so uh, part of the presentation um, you mentioned also talked about some of the themes in successful engagement, you know, the integrity, as you would mentioned, uh, you know, inclusion, having deliberation and understanding, you know, capacity as well. Not everyone has the capacity to engage in the same way. Certainly developers, uh, you know, that's all they do 24-7. They hire consultants who, and that's all they do 24-7. And meanwhile, not everyone has the ability to engage with them at the same level. And so understanding that on both sides is something that's going to help the engagements become more meaningful.
0: And and just the sense of respect of coming in ready to take some time with this do it right. Well,
1: that's, that's right.
0: (laughs) Not a, not a one-time chat, you know? No. This is, this is a long-term commitment.
1: Exactly. Because things like even like linear transportation, like pipelines, you know, to name a few controversial types of projects that are always in the news. You know, when you do a pipeline, it crosses so many geographical boundaries and so many affected communities that you can have, you know, general consensus on certain areas, and then you'll have an Achilles' heel where something happens. And without that, it's it's a unitary project. You can't have a break, so to speak, in you know the approvals process for any part of the pipeline. So it becomes crucial to manage the stakeholder engagement uh, with that view in mind that it all has to work and has to work for everyone, uh, or else there will be you know there will be uh, challenges, even if you can get to operation. So let me take
0: a left turn here. Give me a sense that you were left with of the really quite diverse group that spent this weekend together. Um, we tried, we tried to not just include the, the people who are well known in our community because of their vocal and public commitment to activism, but also to include and welcome and make comfortable people who's, for whom the future is precious and their commitment is profound, but it is quiet. They're not the demonstrators or the presenters. And yet their commitment has enormous impact on our culture and on our planet. Um, anyway, so you had a lot of conversations, Richard, and, and you were standing back and soaking it all in. What do you think? What what impression were you left with?
1: Well, I, uh, I think my impression i had a lot of great all to say quiet conversations with people who are, i was trying to learn from them as well um like for example uh, you know with respect to the fort william first nations uh they have a a 10 megawatt solar project there, and I said, "How's it going? <laughs> you know, what's the sense of it?" And I really got a window into that that I would not have had, you know, reading outside, uh, you know, descriptions of what the project was, uh, and in terms of the trade-offs and the benefits, etc that's one example and then you know other quiet conversations where people were genuinely trying to understand you know they weren't polarized in uh one sense but they really wanted to learn more and test the boundaries of some of the the thinking that was uh, you know that that may go for conventional wisdom when you do community engagement etc they were really you know genuinely uh trying to uh, you know Get to the bottom of it. So overall, I thought, you know, with the various folks that I that I met, um, you know, there are a number of strong communities in Thunder Bay and but there are also multiple communities in Thunder Bay, if that makes sense, because Mm. what I.
0: Well, you talked about that and that was that was really impactful for me, that that the importance of the words we use. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And the word community. Means many things. One person can be a part of many communities. And if you want to have a community led project, start first perhaps by clarifying what community wants this project.
1: Yeah, over the weekend, I, you know, in my mind, I talked uh, with First Nations representatives of First Nations community, uh, a lot uh, from the farming community, or what I would call the farming agricultural community um not so much from the business and development community in a way i i was the proxy for that perhaps but certainly heard a lot about the what i'll call the municipal community as well The city of thunder bay itself and summer stevenson you know who i had uh, co-presented on the second day with she was the embodiment of thunder bay's various initiatives in this and so they you know they uh, are uh, by definition of somewhat of a focal point uh, of a number of projects so they are so influential that i would consider them a community as well and frankly when folks outside of thunder bay think of you know thunder bay i think the first thing you think of is the municipality itself. And so that was a different community where uh, you were looking to engage. And also, I think age demographic, uh, I'll just say it that, uh, you know, I think that is we saw, you know, in the first day groups of high schoolers and and youth also join uh, as well, which was fantastic, because I I was left with, uh, you know, the question how was there a generational gap as well because i i do imagine and if one of the goals is to encourage youth to stay and put down roots to stay in thunder bay because they grew up there but they see real opportunity uh within you know the community to do something that's fulfilling for them and to contribute to the economy uh etc you know you want to give them as many opportunities but sometimes they're the ones learning as well and maybe the most affected both by you know the implications of climate change decades from now but also for their own personal uh, economy if you want if i can call it that mm-hmm. their voice is also uh, important as well because f- for those who are here today eventually we won't be here today and so we might have lots of views on what we think should be done but mm-hmm. you know we may not be living with them <laughs> when you when you move the time scale far enough so hearing from maybe younger strata of the community as well, sort of channeling that because we know that, you know, there's always a tendency that you come in and you just want to listen, listen, listen. Madison is one distinct exception where, you know, she's taken some concrete action to get things done. And no surprise as a community leader and uh, as a co-founder of the conference with you, uh, that, you know, this was a definite attempt to get momentum going amongst different communities, but I think different age groups will also bring different perspectives to the very same issue. That is uh, maybe an uh, untapped resource that I think uh, future initiatives uh, can focus on, and I think that will round it out uh, even in a more fulsome way.
0: Well, the other group that was there in some part, but was not present as a leader or a topic or a perspective that was spotlit, was of newer immigrants to Canada, in part because of the college and the university, especially in the last few years. That's a significant population in Thunder Bay and a diverse one, of course, depending where you're immigrating from and to do what, but one that 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 wasn't as there as vocally as I think it will be important to include if we want to make sure that everybody's voices is, is considered and drawn upon as having insight and, and valuable contributions to bring to the table
1: yeah well uh, i think that immigration into thunder bay is great i mean uh, i also looked at the Community economic development corporations plan uh, as well for Thunder Bay, and so certainly you know they've looked at the the labor side of things, the capital side, the tourism side, attractiveness to uh, industry and business side. So you know, and my my father, my parents being Im- first generation immigrants to Canada from Asia, you know they brought their skill set. But I think what is important here is to uh, engage them because they are here for a reason too, and so. So if you can find the synergies between what they want to do and what Thunder Bay wants to do, or give them pathways or ideas, that would certainly help. And I think that is uh, definitely an untapped resource. And many times, you know, immig- immigrant new immigrants to Canada are you know have other needs that they need to fulfill first. Maybe it's education, uh, or they're trying to you know put food on the table. So they are just trying to find their feet, and um, and so. Still, I think the more they can see what I'll call a culture in Thunder Bay encouraging engagement, mm-hmm. I think that would be great. For example, housing. Let's talk about housing for a second. You know, housing shortage is everywhere. Lots of challenges everywhere you go and the prices are are getting crazy and there's shortages, including for rental housing as well. But Thunder Bay has a real bright spot that out of the 50 Ontario municipalities that were given targets, Thunder Bay was just one out of nine to achieve their target. And I think it started about 170 or so new housing units uh, and it beat its target. And because it beat its target, it got a bonus some more money from the government as well so uh, i know we've been talking a lot about energy but uh, because i develop all sorts of capital projects that also includes housing developments whether it's uh, you know towers or subdivision developments from a construction perspective so i know that development process very well uh, you also have to do environmental assessments as well of course and you have to get community engaged, but of course you think that the reason you're building this is because you have enough buyers to want to buy it. So there is some, you know, literally buy-in into the project. And then you've got your construction financing by a bank, and then you can get your project built and then you close and you collect your money, right? So it's not that different from building a wind farm or a mine. In the sense of that, you know, from feasibility to execution that we were talking about earlier. But just on that point, you know, housing construction and city planning is also critical to climate change. And so that was another theme that came out over the weekend as well. I, I you know, this is not just about energy. Energy is a big part of it, but having a smart city is something that they're all now focusing on concepts of hubs and keeping community sort of integrated as opposed to spread out. And uh, one of my impressions in Thunder Bay, it's very hardy, very strong, distinct communities, but separated by distance as well. So anything that could mm-hmm. be done.
0: Yeah, I feel like the last thing we need is more suburbs. <laughs> we have so much infrastructure with insufficient structures upon it. It's very expensive.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so any city is in a constant state of renewal. Even state of good repair type of development are still investments. And so from a planning perspective, why not plan for you know the medium term with respect to a smart city or something that will then also reduce the carbon footprint of that and provide synergies? Thunder Bay has to find something that works for itself. I'm just giving, again, samples, examples, not playbooks, but essentially the Concept of a community that is more integrated is something that has uh, been linked to climate change as well in terms of reliance on automobiles and you know. But there are certain limitations, of course. I totally understand that. Uh, But the question is to think about it. You can't just not think about it and keep building, you know, new housing anywhere just because you can build a new road out to it. There should be some more thought processes around how that can be linked to some of the uh, aspirational goals uh, related to climate change. Uh, So I think that that is something that's important.
0: Which is really on point for right now, because one of the themes that I felt came up in many of the conversations I had at the gathering was that a lot of great planning has been done. You know, consultants have been brought in, effort has been made, expertise has been applied, and we have some lovely commitments made but they don't necessarily actually get realized because right now there's just not enough awareness of them, vocalized support for them, understanding of them. There seems to be some disconnect in our community right now between what we said we want to do and that now's the time to do it. (laughs) So there is this, uh, this, this idea percolating like we need to like get to know these proposals and if we like them, make them happen. That that was like, Low-lying fruit right in front of our noses here in this city.
1: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, when I when I was taking a look uh, at publicly available materials in preparation, I that's what struck me as well. That there has been a lot of pla- in terms of net zero, for example, uh, urban planning. Um, you know, not only through the city but the CEDC as well. There was and it's recent, not completely outdated or antiquated. That is fantastic initial step in terms of visioning and throwing that out there. Then I would say overlaying some of the infrastructure that I described earlier uh, on electrification of Northwest. That's in my mind, part of the solution here as well. So now you've got Thunder Bay with a vision through articulated plans, plus you've got electrification. Maybe you've you know, Arguably, there's a, a boom in mining on critical minerals in particular that is part of the equation. And I know from the news, there are uh, new projects that relate to the mining industry that are being proposed. And so a lot of political eyes on it as well uh, for Thunder Bay. So those are things that City Council, for lack of another community that's the focal point for this will no doubt have to grapple with and contend with the various viewpoints on this as i know there are but that's something that that is normal it's something that developers always deal with It's expected. And so the question is, you know, how can this process go forward? Because political paralysis is usually deadly when it comes to the private sector. As I had mentioned at the start of this, political stability, I had that client, uh, you know, who was developing wind farms all over Canada, they were looking for stable regulations. Within Canada, at the city council level, agree to things that will stay notwithstanding a future change in council and that is something that developers really need to see for this to work. Planning's all done, execution is going to be no doubt something that the City of Thunder Bay with the assistance of the CEDC will be playing a key role in 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 private sector development.
0: And of our neighbours and potential partners of all the First Nations that are tied to us because this has been a gathering place for nations well before colonialism, still continues to be. There's so many First Nations spread out across this broader region for whom this is part of their life, this place. And therefore their relationship to the governance here of the municipality is like you said, there's, there's more precedence now, there's a little more clarity and there's a potential to do more better together. That really was harder to achieve very recently.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Especially, you know, things like my conversation on the Fort William solar project, for example, and the increased uh, community engagement that's been required or uh, engaged in by developers all the way to the partnership level is uh, only becoming more intense over time. So I think you're going to have more folks now taking ownership of some issues and being the focal point. So I think that's where leadership comes in. Uh, And I think that's an important point. There's a lot of planning and a lot of talk, but I think what is needed to break through if there is, you know, this point where we feel like, okay, we all see the forces at play now, we've got plans, we've got goals, some ones slash some ones need to make decisions that's what leadership is part of. I mean, leadership is a process. It's not just the decision, it's how you get to the decision. And so someone needs to take leadership in that broader sense and someones for their own communities and contribute to moving the ball forward. And, mm-hmm. and in some cases, it may mean a project gets analyzed and disregarded and, and canceled, or others get analyzed and a decision's made to go ahead. Whatever it is, whatever the industry, energy, housing, you know, transit, whatever it is the leaders have to move that conversation forward that is to me the next step that uh, begging to be had the sooner the better because now the political climate and the regulatory climate and the you know financial climate for this uh, ESG as a as a trend which
0: is environmental governance and social standards
1: yeah exactly cop 28 which coincidentally you know happened not not soon after uh, or so
0: well, that's why we planned it for that weekend actually so that we would all be kind of briefed on the home front before cop28 flooded the airwaves yeah
1: perfect and and then now specifically you know out of cop28 the canadian government's commitments made during cop28 you know to me is just more indication that there's more momentum and more money to be frank grants or tax breaks to various parties who want to make things happen those help unlock the window to viability like financial viability of projects And so municipalities, you know, don't have to just find its money through the tax base to make things happen. That is not realistic. The deal with the province is also important, but there's the federal level as well, and then the private sector. So there are a number of ways of financing. If it were me, I would want communities in Thunder Bay to now focus on the money and partnerships aspect and the leadership aspect. Because I think when you combine that leadership plus a, a real hyper focus on financing and the partnership with private sector or partnership with First Nations, with government, whatever that partnership looks like, I think that if you can get that going and then lead the conversation forward with a fulsome understanding of the financial side of where the money can come from it can then break that barrier. And like the Sault Ste. Marie vignette, sometimes it's a pilot project that sort of gets the ball rolling. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. And so taking a step will be just that, a step, but it will be a concrete step that allows folks to see where they are. And I think that's really the action in the hope and action that you were thinking of.
0: Yeah, I think we need to value every step and not get betrayed by a sense that, well, we didn't magically go from A to Z without a single letter in between, although that is tempting, right? You get get overwhelmed. (laughs) Not everything spells itself out as neatly as an alphabet, and it's scary to do things that are new, but if you have a clarity of vision and we have to change, static is not healthy. So let's choose how we wish to change and actively engage in that. There's so many kinds of ways to be active that that can give us all hope, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, And that's the multiple communities, because certainly even at the homeowner level, there are things you can do within your own home. It grants, as you're well aware, with respect to energy reduction. And, you know, you should not think... I'm so small. What can one person do? Type of thing. I mean, everyone has a personal responsibility. So it's really a community of your household now, you know, where you might make choices on what's the next car you buy Mm -hmm. or trying to, uh, you know, minimize uh, electricity consumption during peak periods. Because if everyone did that, Believe it or not, you wouldn't actually need as many power plants that are fired up with gas if you if you didn't have peaks. So a lot of what the uh, ISO is doing is trying to shave that peak or to reduce that peak. But load management is is one where they've got this program called the uh, five CP, the five coincident peaks, where they basically. Give a break to um, industries who are able to turn off or turn down during the highest uh, peak times in uh, Ontario. The thing is, if you can't meet the peak, then that kind of means there's a blackout. (laughs) And so that's even worse. And then business starts saying, you know what, I can't live with this sort of uncertainty from an electricity standpoint. I need a stable system. And so they leave. Um, And so the point there is that everyone can do their part because collectively we are all one large load and so any individual action to reduce your consumption or to to make things more green in terms of emissions or your use and and that's i think was the the agenda on hope and action right there was a lot of things about uh, farming and and things that you can do at home even the the viking biking or biking vikings there are all elements of personal action one can take i took out of this conference you know there is no action that's too small to make a contribution
0: mm-hmm. and also there's no person too small to to add their voice to these engagement opportunities we all have a perspective of value and the more that we can Gain clarity on what would work here because we have the essential insight in, in some elements of, of change. What would work here? Why do we think it would work here? Uh, the better the solutions will be, the faster we can realize them, the more we'll be comfortable with them. So it's also kind of thinking your way through change on the broader front and being willing to talk about it. I think that's a, a very feasible way to support action that most of us can undertake, especially the kind of people that are willing to listen to a long chat between you and I about <laughs> the future looking bright.
1: <laughs> well, we've both got kids. I've got three kids. Uh, you know, you've got two. These things you don't learn in school. I mean, you do, right? I'm, I'm hearing that, you know, some of this is kind of working its way at the curriculum, but to actually have an in-depth one-on-one chat and to develop the values um, over time. To me, that if you don't learn that in the household, then where are you going to learn it? And so, I think as a parent, just mm-hmm. changing hats for a second, that uh, you know there are again no communities too small. You know, starting from the household and maybe identifying what is a priority to a family, um, and I think that's that's something we all can do.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, you're you're changing values, you're demonstrating values, you're building on values. And you're, you're putting those, your money where your mouth is, your time where your mouth is, because we really do want to be heroes of the future. We want to be ancestors that can, can have done more good than, than harm when the total tally's done at the end of the day.
1: Yep, couldn't agree more.
0: <laughs> well, I, I promised to talk to you for less than an hour and I failed because it's just so fun. I really, really enjoyed talking to you, Richard, about all of this. Thank you for all the thoughtfulness and the insight you brought to our chat and to your visit.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it was uh, it was one of the best things I've done. I got to say, in a long time, you know, I could have tried to participate virtually, as as you actually said, there was a virtual option. But the in person interactions, all of the quiet conversations that ensue, that was, was more than worth uh, the trip. Uh, you know, the cost to fly, and it's the it's the longest flight I've made within Ontario. I, I can say it. And- <laughs> But it was... Wait
0: till they fly up to Red Lake. Then you'll really get at them.
1: That's yeah, true. I should have said so far. So, <laughs> especially with everything happening in the Northwest, I'm sure that this will not be, not be the last. I spent last week in Sudbury with respect to a mining project. There's definitely a lot of activity by various folks. So I uh, look forward to coming back. Yay!
0: Me too. Thanks, Richard. This has been great fun. Yeah. Richard Wong came to Thunder Bay to take part in the Northwest Climate Gathering. And join me for this conversation from Toronto. Now, here's the song that conversation inspired me to write in its entirety. This is It's Time to Dance. The music has started We know like the world is burning. Dance like the times are turning. Every leader first follows. So call out the song. boils down to people to you We know the steps. It's time to dance, dance for tomorrow. Dance like the world is burning. Dance like the times are turning. Every leader first follows. So call out. Need big solutions. Big jobs need teams to work. Expect the respect you give. You share what you know. You learn and you grow. Build it to last. See how Out of time. That concludes the final episode in season five of Something Different This Way Comes. Find links to all the references I promised at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca, as well as lyrics and chords for that new song and all the other ones I've composed for this podcast over these last seasons. This season, I focused on hope and action for Northwestern Ontario, towards the plethora of diverse solutions that beckon us. Towards a fairer, more affordable, a healthier future. I hope to have some updates on action to share with you in my next season. Look for it in the spring. Meanwhile, I'm volunteering on the committee struck to review the City of Thunder Bay Council's structure, and you can contact me about that. You can talk to me and contact me about pretty much anything through the website www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes with any ideas or feedback you have. You could also post a review. A great review is a wonderful thing. A recommendation to a friend. Even a donation through my GoFundMe campaign. That would be fabulous, too. Something different this way comes as a one-woman show. All opinions voiced by me are my own. So's the research, the editing, the songwriting, the guest booking. I'm Heather McLeod. Thank you for listening. May 2024 be a great year for you, full of welcome change and deepening relationships with all the people and the places that you love. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different, something different, different, this way comes something. Something different, something different